So again, if you've got your Bibles and you're not open to John 20, please open to John 20. Um, you know, just like Nathan and Heather mentioned, I have been and we've been watching with the kids um, a lot of Jesus movies uh, this week. We've watched uh, parts of Jesus of Nazareth. I actually posted a scene from there uh, on my YouTube page or my Facebook page from YouTube, a beautiful scene with Laurence Olivier pointing towards uh, Isaiah 53 um, and, and, and uh, as, he, as he plays the role of Nicodemus watching Jesus on the cross, he has this realization Oh, goodness, this is, this is Isaiah 53. This is what was prophesied 700 years before. And he starts reciting Isaiah 53. It's a poetic license. That, that scene is not in Scripture, but it's a beautiful poetic license. And I think it honors, um, it honors the, the, the truth about Jesus fulfilling what Isaiah had prophesied. Uh, watched some of The Passion of the Christ, incredibly graphic, grueling movie. Um, but one thing that really, like, really jumped out at me this time in a way that I don't know I saw before. And maybe it had to do with um, also just the, the Passion Week, Holy Week devotionals we were doing, where, where we were reading um, through Jesus' Holy Week, is, is how everything came apart so quickly. You know, it, it was like these disciples had been with Jesus for three years, and they had come to believe he was the son of God. They had come to believe this over three years. They had seen over three years his power displayed miraculously again and again and again. He would go to a town and he would heal every single person that came to him. He would cast out every single demon. Of course, you guys know they saw him tell the wind and the waves to be quiet and they, be, they were quiet. Uh, he walked on water. Um, they had they had heard truths spoken from Jesus that were unable at any moment to be argued with, uh, whether it was with his enemies or with them. They heard him not as a prophet of God, but as God speaking himself. They saw him stand up time and time again to people who were trying to kill him, crowds that picked up the stones to, to kill him. And he would... He would, in Mark 1, I think it said, uh, he Luke 4, he walks through the crowd, you know, that's picking up to stone him. He just goes on his way. There was something about Jesus that was unconquerable for three years. Uh, he even, you know, drew faith from the, the worst enemies of, of Israel, the Romans. You know, you'd see the Roman centurion come to Jesus for help, and Jesus helped. It just seemed like he lived this life of inconquerable power and uh, majesty. And, and then in, in, in one day, you know, it, it just, it, it all comes undone. Just days from where we pick up our text today, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead and then walked into the city. We read this last Sunday on a donkey with tens of thousands of people clamoring, crying out for his coronation as king, saying, you are the Messiah. And, and then, you know, I, I thought the best analogy I could come up with was, imagine if you lived in a home that was your dream home, like all of your hopes, you built it, and it was beautiful, and you'd lived in it for years. And then one day you had to watch from, uh, from the other side of the street, as it just burned down in three hours. 
Jesus had gone from being the king of their world, the security of their lives, in just a few hours, to being arrested, flogged, beaten, mercilessly crucified, stabbed, and it died. All in just a few hours. I, I don't think that we can apprehend the trauma of, of what it would have been like emotionally to go through what these men go, went through, unless we've gone through something so horrible, you know, lost a loved one, uh, lost someone that we were with every day. You know, I, I just, I kept thinking what, a, what a blizzard of destruction came upon this, this peaceful, secure life that, that in general, these disciples knew with their Lord. All the glory and strength and promise of power of Jesus for three years that he had built into them, that they had seen, and suddenly in hours, he is slaughtered and he is dead and he is gone. And that's where we pick up John 20 today. The disciples are devastated, they are scattered, and they are scared. When, when his naked body, beaten and bloody and lifeless, lifeless gray was finally pulled down from the cross and that late afternoon on good friday the women who were about the only ones who stayed with him except for john as far as we can tell the women caring for his burial barely had time to get him ready for the sabbath and so when we pick up this sunday easter morning we've got mary mary magdalene and she's coming to finish treating the body of jesus for burial but I, but I just wanted to say a lot to give everybody kind of the psychological, emotional backdrop of, of what's in Mary, what's in the disciples, what's going on, you know, in their lives. And so we're going to pick it up in, in verse, <laughs> verse 1 of chapter 20. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tube, the tomb, and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Seeing Jesus missing, Mary might have taken the idea that thieves, grave robbers that, that were a real phenomenon at the time may have stolen his body or, or perhaps the Jewish authorities who were afraid that the disciples would spread a resurrection story. Perhaps they had taken him. And, and so she runs to the other disciple, it says, the one whom Jesus loved. And, and, and I want to just sidebar here for a moment. We see that phrase in, in the Gospel of John, the one whom Jesus loved several times. This is almost certainly the way the writer of the Gospel, John the Apostle, describes himself in the Gospels. So I, I just thought before we go too far, I just wanted to stop for a moment and just consider John's beautiful view of himself. His whole personhood is enraptured in Jesus and in Jesus' love for him, such that this is how he defines himself in his gospel. He's neither good nor bad. I mean, he does good or bad things in the gospels, but, but that's not how he describes himself. He doesn't describe himself as good or bad or smart or wise or rich or poor or black or white. He calls himself the one Jesus loved. And I just, you know, as I went over this, I thought, God, that you would help us get lost in that and, and need, need nothing greater than to be called the one that Jesus loved. 
not pastor or elder or popular kid or college graduate or a successful a businessman, professional, spiritually mature Christian, beautiful, successful mom, but just to say I'm content to be known as the one that Jesus loved. I, I, I need that so much um, to be able to define myself with an expression of real satisfaction in my heart as the one whom Jesus loves. And I, I think that's where ultimate freedom freedom is. So back to our text. Mary tells Peter and John that the tomb is empty, and they run to the scene of the apparent crime. And we'll pick up in verse 3, and we'll go to verse 10. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stopped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. This is like an action movie. Mary finds the tomb empty. She runs to John and Peter and tells them, the tomb is empty. They run back to the tomb. There is great concern for Jesus' body. They don't want his body abandoned. And and then they look and they have their reactions and then they run back. (laughs) There's a sense of moving really quickly. and, And I think under this moving really quickly picture, there's, and this is my, my you, you know, I, this isn't written in the scripture, but I think this, this passage is fraught with this sense of tension, that they're trying to do what they're doing scared. They're scared of the authorities. They're scared. Their, their leader, their best friend and their hope has just been horribly murdered. And, and so they're really confused and trying to do what they can to honor Jesus' body and what's happened to it. But they're also like, let's get out of here. You know, so, so going back into the text here. We see John, he peeks in first, and then he waits outside. For some reason, he's not even going to go in right away. But Peter, often bold, he runs in, straight in, and he, and he looks carefully. That's what this Greek word means. It means notices. And he sees the clothes, but he doesn't understand what's going on. It's like they've got clothes, but no body. So, you know, they're thinking, what, what thief would take a naked body and leave the clothes. This is Joseph's shroud, Joseph's burial clothes. They're probably expensive. Joseph was a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. So, you know, remember that even the Roman centurions were casting lots for Jesus' robe, and, and so these burial clothes are left there. So why would robbers take a naked body? They were looking for what grave robbers look for, right? Today we think of grave robbers looking for watches and jewelry. But these guys... Why would they take a naked body? Or, or the authorities, why would they want a naked corpse? And wouldn't they want to get rid of all the evidence and not take the body and leave the clothes? So there's just this strangeness to this. I think Peter's feeling that. And then there's another mystery here that's that's intimated by the Greek. And I've I, I read other people on this. I, I don't feel like I'm a, a good enough Greek scholar to do more than report to you what's consistently uh, come up in the readings I've done, which is that 
it appears that the burial clothes themselves, because of the way that the Greek language is laid out here, the, the clothes lying there, the clothes lying there, it's repeated twice. It appears that the burial clothes themselves, they evidence a miracle because the way that they're there, it's as if their form on the, the rock is as if Jesus' body had passed through them. If you guys have seen the end of Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, that's exactly what he portrays in the film. You watch as the, the burial clothes have the shape of Jesus' body, and they slowly float down as if the body was dematerialized and coming out of the clothes. And I, I, I would surmise that it's possible that, that the, the people who wrote that movie script got that from the scholars who talk about what this means that Jesus' clothes were laying there. <laughs> so, so Peter doesn't understand. Uh, John comes in and sees these burial clothes situated very mysteriously. And then we're told he believes. John gets it. He knows what has happened. It's exactly what the Lord said. On the third day, I will rise. Now, the next thing is odd, whether through fear or confusion or argument, we don't know. But they leave. <laughs> and guess who they leave? They leave Mary. So they go off and, you know, there's no at least reported conversation. Come on, Mary, come with us. We got to make sure we don't get caught by the guards. You know, we, we don't know what's going on, but it's she's there sobbing. So we pick it up in verse 11 with Mary alone, abandoned by these two brothers in the Lord, and she's crying outside the tomb. So let's pick it up in verse 11. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. And she saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her, who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni! which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go, find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. And then she gave them his message. Now, a couple of explanations here. As the Hebrew book of Hebrews tell us, angels can look like angels, but they can also hide among us in forms that are inseparable from how we look. Uh, so apparently Mary sees these two beings as humans. And, and then when she sees Jesus, though, she doesn't know who he is. And this is even more curious. We're never told exactly why this is. But a similar thing happens in Luke 24 when the risen Jesus meets two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and somehow his identity is hidden from them. 
And, and why this is happening to Mary is not clear. You know, this is, again, uh, hopefully sanctified speculation. One of the things that might be connected with it is that in 1 Corinthians 15, we learn that glorified bodies, resurrected bodies, may be renewed in such a way that while they're, they're connected in some ways to our present bodies, uh, like Jesus will learn very shortly, he still has marks from his crucifixion on his body, they're also yet in some ways gloriously different. Uh, what's sown uh, in flesh, Paul says, is flesh. What's raised is spiritual. Uh, I don't think that means that we don't have physical material bodies, but I think it means that there's some quality about our, our resurrected bodies that's, that's very different. And so Mary doesn't recognize Jesus, but then when she does, she hears her name, she collapses at his feet, and she's apparently clinging quite tightly. <laughs> you know, she's gone to the trauma of watching him horribly murdered, of thinking he's gone forever. And now, <laughs> here he is, you know, just, I just imagine her joy, like, what in the world can keep this man down? <laughs> you know, walks on water, calms the storms, casts out demons. They crucified him. And now he's standing in front of me. And she's just like, this is my hero, salvation, hope, safety. And she's grabbing on for dear life. I am not losing you again. I am not losing you again. And then Jesus says, Mary, you know, I, I think in effect, we're not told exactly what he means here, but I think in effect, Jesus is saying, well, he does say to her, I've not yet ascended to my father. Don't cling to me. And I think what Jesus is saying in effect, Mary, I, I'm not here to stay yet. I've still got to ascend to my father. Uh, you can't get used to seeing me and touching me. You know, I, 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 I've got work to do. There's work for all of us to do. Um, I, I, that's my best sense of what this means. Other people think it might mean, Mary, you don't have to cling. I, I'm going to be here for 40 days. But I, I tend to think because Jesus says, I've not yet ascended to my father, it's probably that he's trying to say, Mary, I, you can't get used to me physically right yet, okay? Uh, um, but it's just a beautiful scene. And, and then Jesus does something that's so wonderful. He commissions Mary as the very first missionary of the Christian church. She's a woman, and he says, Go and tell my brothers that I am ascending to my father and their father, to my God and your God. And so Mary's to take the first proclamation of the full message of Jesus' death and resurrection and coming ascension to the apostles, these apostles who will then take it to the world. So Mary Magdalene becomes the first apostle of the Gentiles. Now, let's go to some, some hopefully some, some fruitful application. I want to touch on three points in the text that I hope we can draw great encouragement from. Um, I, I saw three important themes here that Jesus' resurrection calls us to. And, and the first one is this, um, intimacy that we were made for, point one, intimacy that we were made for. What's just under the surface, but kind of like the nose on your face, like it's, it's so important not to miss that we can miss it. I mean, it, it's so there that we can just presume and take it for granted. And I think it's important for us to just stop and think that we don't miss this major theme that is right in front of us. And that's that Jesus Christ rose from the grave to give us a relationship with him, to give us an intimate relationship with him. 
And yes, in eternity, it will be better than any relationship we can have on earth with people we can see and talk to. But even now, we are meant to experience, to pursue, to seek, and to have the most soul-satisfying foretaste of our eternal hope now. Even now, we're meant to pursue that intimacy. Let's come back to the passage in verses of 14 and 16. She turns to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Let's think about Mary for a second. Mary's world has crumbled, right? She's sobbing outside the tomb. And and I just want to kind of hammer this point. Do you remember who Jesus was? He had delivered Mary from seven demons. Mary found Jesus in, in a situation where she had literally been possessed by seven demonic beings. And her life before Jesus was a horror. And now he was gone. You know, we can imagine her wondering, am I going to go back to that place now? He had saved her. She had been devoted to him for the rest of his ministry. She had come to believe he was the great king. So, so coming back to Mary, remember what he had done for her. He was her hope. And, and, and now, like, like we've said for the others, someone's stolen his body. So Mary turns to leave, verse 14, and she sees someone standing there. It's Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Jesus says, dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her, who are you looking for? She thinks he's the gardener. Sir, if you've taken him away, tell me where you've put him and I will go and get him. And then Jesus just says this, Mary. And she turns and cries out, collapses at his feet. I think this is one of the most tender, beautiful, most powerful, foundational, universe-defying moments in all of Scripture. R.C. Sproul says it this way, Jesus put an end to her grief, confusion, her entire devastation with one simple word, her name. Jesus put an end to her grief and confusion and entire devastation with one simple word, her name. Isn't this a foretaste of of what we long for, of what we need every single day, throughout the day, to hear Jesus, our Lord, our Creator, say our name in the midst of our upheaval, in the midst of our groaning, in the midst of our despair, in the midst of our struggle with sin and temptation and failure. Believer, isn't this the deepest desire of your heart? To just hear the Lord in the midst of it all say with love, with kindness, with power and authority, with gentleness, your name. Just put your name there. You know, when we're in a crisis... We don't primarily need answers from God. We need the presence of God. And, I, I, you know, answers are good, and you want answers, and we all scurry for answers. But, but I find myself looking and scrounging for answers, not finding the answers, and becoming more and more anxious, or in finding the answers, finding new questions, <laughs> new questions to ask in the middle of a crisis. And it just kind of goes on and on and on. And, and what I need is not primarily answers. I need the presence of God. I need to know that Jesus is here, that he sees, that he knows, and that he is for me.
It's not enough, as Pam was saying, for our souls to know about God. The soul of a born-again believer will only be satisfied by knowing God and being known by God. This is what Jesus said was eternal life in John 17. A, a few days before this, Jesus said, this is eternal life. He didn't call it a time period. He didn't call it a quality of life uh, in, this, in our circumstantial blessings like houses and nice health. He said, this is eternal life to know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Brothers and sisters, this is Christianity at its core, to know and be known by God. And this is why Jesus died and rose, so that he could rise to his Father, making a full payment for our sins, and then, having made a full payment for our sins, having secured our our. Our, our righteousness before him, our forgiveness before him, he could send his Holy Spirit into our, into our hearts to live with us. A few days before this day, in, in, on First Resurrection Sunday, Jesus said to the disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And brothers and sisters, if we think anything else will give us ultimate satisfaction, we are wrong. This is what we are made for. This is what we need to know that we are in him and he is in us. If you and I cannot be fully satisfied, I'm sorry, if you and I can be, fully satisfied, if we can be fully satisfied without his presence, without his intimacy, we know that something is wrong. We know that we're veering off the path. And we should ask ourselves, what's going on? Why am I finding myself satisfied without him? And we should run to him for help. We were made for him above all other things, above all other people, places, and things. We were made for him. Um, and and as, again, as Pam told us before, Knowing Christ is not only a matter of facts about Jesus. It's a matter of coming to him, to trust him for our salvation from sin and hell. Absolutely. First and foremost, from our salvation, for our salvation from sin and death and hell, the free gift that he gives. But then moving from that into a daily moment-by-moment -moment trust in which we depend on Jesus to lead us, to lead us again and again with grace to be our strength, to follow him as our Lord, to be our power source, to be our mercy and grace constantly as we fail and fall down. There's a church in the book of Revelation. I think it's the church of Laodicea. It's lukewarm Christians. And Jesus rebukes them pretty harshly. He even says, if, if, you, know, if you stay lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And, and the Lord is basically warning them they're in great spiritual danger because they're finding their satisfaction without him and their hearts are turning cold. But then after rebuking them, Jesus says the most tender thing. He says to them, to these people who he's been chastising for not wanting him, for being satisfied without him, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is an invitation from our Lord to know him 
and to be known by him, to be satisfied above all things, to be able to say in our hearts, I am satisfied by being like John, the one whom the Lord loves, and to find our hope, to find our hope in hearing him say our name in the midst of our trouble, in the midst of our sorrow. I need that so much. You know, I, I, I read these words, I'm preaching these things to you, but I know how much I need this. You know, this is a, a weird application, but I'm just going to take a second. I'm just going to pray for all of us that before we move on to the next point, that this would be our hunger and that this would be our experience more and more. Lord God, I just pray for everyone present right now, and I pray for myself, that by your grace, by your mercy, our hunger, most of all, above all things, would be for you. And I pray by your grace and your mercy, our experience would progressively grow more and more to being you, knowing us, calling our name. Teach us, Lord, to go to you again and again for these things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Number two, <clears throat> family we are saved for. A family we are saved for. Next theme. Jesus died and rose to give you a new family. Jesus says to Mary, go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Do you know this is the first time in the entire Gospel of John that Jesus calls these disciples my brothers? It's after his death and resurrection. And I, I wasn't there, so I don't know the tone, but in my mind, I hear victory in Jesus' voice coming out of the grave, proclaiming this incredible honor on his people. My father and your father, my God and your God, go and tell my brothers the risen Christ, in taking our sins upon himself, in removing them from us, he is able to bestow upon us the greatest honor imaginable. He is able, he is able to make God our very father and himself our very brother. He is able to bring us into his eternal family and make us his brother, make us God's children, give us a seat at his dinner table and eat with us. No second-class citizens, no forgiven but still a servant. No sons and daughters of God. Believer, Jesus is your brother. God is your father. We, I pray our father, and, and, I, and I just move quickly. Our father who art in heaven, you know, I, I just want to tell my soul, stop. Lord, help my eyes be open to the ability to just say, our father. Oh, my goodness. And my heart often cries out, Lord, I don't have a right to call myself son and call you father. Or Jesus, how can I call you my brother? Look at my heart. Look at my sin. And, and I think the answer is, in, is, is right here before Mary, and, and, it's, and it's in the next few verses after Mary proclaims the gospel to the disciples. Look at this with me, starting in 19. On the evening of that day, that is Easter Sunday, that night, the very first day of the week, this is just a few hours after Jesus has seized, seized Mary, the doors being locked 
where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. We have another first time moment here in the gospel of John. This is the first time in the whole gospel of John that Jesus ever says, peace be with you. It's the first time. And then he says, not only peace be with you, it says he shows them his wounds. He shows them his wounds. Do you see that? When he had said this, verse 20, he showed them his hands in his side. So we can see Jesus saying, in effect, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. What's he doing? He is showing them their peace. He is showing them his wounds in his risen body. He bears the wounds that show their sin has fallen on him and not them. He bears the wounds that show them God's judgment for their sin has fallen on him and not them. And he's alive. He's no longer bound to death. He's no longer paying for their sins. And, and this is the answer to why we would dare be able to say, God, you're my father. Jesus, you're my brother. His wounds. We must see his wounds. Even today, with the eyes of our heart, we must see his wounds and see our sins buried and conquered in those wounds. His resurrection. We must see his risen body saying, I'm no longer dying for your sins. They are paid for. You have peace with God. The suffering has ended. The transaction has ended. You have peace with God. The punishment has been born, and there's no more punishment for you. I'm alive now. I'm done dying for your sins, being punished for your sins. Now God is satisfied. Now he says, peace. We're at peace. And, you know, we, we, we need to stop and see these wounds. Jesus is telling us something so foundational, and, and we're in a world that has increasingly absolutely no ears to hear this. And we won't hear it either unless we're careful. Jesus is saying implicitly here, there is no peace for you and God without these wounds. There is no calling God our God. There is no calling Jesus our brother, and he will not call us his brother either without these wounds, without these wounds on a resurrected Savior who has finished paying for our peace with God. You and I are sinners. We deserve death. We deserve God's judgment. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. This is not popular theology. This is not something that people love to hear but it's something God tells us because he loves us. Our holy God cares passionately about love and holiness, and he is grieved and angered by sin and rejection of him. But in Jesus, he has treated his son as we should have been treated, so that now we become treated as Jesus is treated, as children of God, sons and daughters. And, and these wounds 
they do so much more than simply forgive us our sins. They, they make God again our Father and Jesus our brother. Number three and final point, a king we live for and depend on. A king we live for and depend on. I want to close by going back to Jesus' question for Mary. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asks her. You see that? Dear woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And I want to ask us this question. Who are you looking for? Mary had tremendous fear and tremendous trouble. Tremendous crisis, tremendous sorrow. In the midst of that, Jesus says, who are you looking for? All seems lost to Mary. Her Lord is dead. Her heart is a wreck. Her spiritual family is devastated. Her friends have run off. They've left her inconsolable. And Jesus comes to her in the midst of that and says, who are you looking for? And I think we can we can say in a similar way that Jesus comes to us in our troubles and he says, who are you looking for? You know, we might be looking for relational peace. There's nothing wrong with wanting that. We, we may or may not find it today. We might be looking for a promise of financial security. We may or may not find it today. You, you can fill in the blank of what you're looking for today. But in the midst of it all, Jesus wants us to remember who we must be looking for above all things. Moment by moment, day by day, who are we looking for? And, and, and then he, I think he, the Lord would want us, like he wanted Mary, to not only ask that question, but to know who he is, to, to know who it is that we're to be looking for when we think about who Jesus is. See, Mary is, this is a, a little bit tricky, but just try to follow me here. Mary is crying, and we can all understand her tears, and we can all hopefully get in her shoes at this point and sympathize with her. We should. But also, she's crying because she does not quite know who Jesus is as well as she should. She's crying because she does not know who Jesus is as well as she should. And, and we can all relate to that, can't we? I'm not saying, please, I, 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 I'm not saying that there aren't times where we should mourn and have sorrow. We should. The Psalms tell us again and again that God knows that place in our hearts, and he's created those songs so that we can know that he blesses, affirms, the, the reality of human suffering. But, but Mary cries because in her mind, in this moment, Jesus to her is still away from her. He's still inaccessible to her. He's not here. He's not able. And, and Again, I want to be really careful here because we can, we can drive over sorrow and, and, and throw super harmful, destructive things on people like, you shouldn't be sad, just trust God. And, you know, definitely God wants us to trust him. But so often there's a pathway to, to, to the Lord's work to bring us to that place. You know, Jesus doesn't come to Mary and says, why are you crying? Don't you know who I am? No, no, no. He's asking her questions. Mary, what are you looking for? Do you know who I am? Come and see who I am. And, and, and so I think there's, there's this 
place where Jesus is saying to Mary, Mary, come and see who I am afresh. Recognize me again, but recognize me for all that I am now in my resurrection. I'm not a defeated, tragic hero. I'm not some martyr whose, whose only honor is a memorial grave for you to cry upon. I'm not a noble victim whose only legacy is a good example. I am the risen, conquering king, and I am taking you with me. I am here for you. I am the risen savior who has reconciled you to God and made it so that you are at peace with my father. I am your brother who has made my father your father. I am done paying for your sins. It is finished. You are righteous in my father's sight now. This is a free gift for me. And I am no longer in the business of dying for your sins. That is done. I am now in the business of new creation, of making all things new. And Mary, you are my new creation. I sit at God's right hand above every ruler and every authority above all your spiritual enemies. I sit above your sin. I sit above death and demons and hell, and I am their conqueror. I sit enthroned at the holy throne of grace. From that place, I sympathize with all of your suffering and weaknesses. I sympathize with your temptations to sin. I was tempted like that. I know that it's hard, but I'm alive now. And I am here to give you grace and mercy and power to endure. This is who Jesus is. He's not the dead, lifeless body that was pulled down from the cross. That's over. He is the risen, conquering king who has come for us, who has come to be our savior from hell. Yes, but our savior each day. And and it's our honor. It's our privilege It's our only duty. Oh, Lord, help this be my heart to seek him as that conquering Savior. And and, and if, if that seeking needs to be through tears and trouble like Mary's, let it be through tears and trouble like Mary. But let us be seeking him and let's let's find in his wounds our sins paid for again and again. Let's find in his resurrection, him proclaiming that he's alive and with us. And let's depend on him. You know, there's such a proclivity in me to knee-jerk, not dependence, but fear or flight. And, 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 I, and I, I came across this quote that I just wanted to share with you today that I think is so beautiful about this very thing. <clears throat> I did print it up, and I have lost it, but here it is. This is from our friend Charles Spurgeon. He says this, and I'll I'll send this out on Tuesday, and if you want it earlier than that, just let me know. He says, cast your troubles where you cast your sins. Cast your troubles where you have cast your sins. You've cast your sins onto Jesus. Cast your troubles there also. As soon as the trouble comes, quick, the first thing, tell it to your Father in heaven. Remember, 
that the longer you take telling your trouble to God, the more your peace will be impaired. The longer the frost lasts, the more likely the ponds will be frozen. Oh, it is a happy way of smoothing sorrow when we can cast our burden upon the Lord. Come, cast your burden upon the Lord. I see you staggering beneath a weight which he would not feel. What seems to you a crushing burden would be nothing but a bit of dust to him. See, the Almighty bends his shoulders and he says, here, put your troubles here. Now, I wish that when I came upon troubles and crisis, I could just say, Lord, here it is. Take it away. And sometimes that happens. But oftentimes, again, as we've said, it's this process of continuing to go, of continuing to seek. And he has some growth for me in that process as I continue to fight to give my worries and my struggle, my temptation to him. But again, as Spurgeon says, dependence on Christ in our weakness is our great ally. We, we, are never, we are never more safe, never have more reason to expect the Lord's help than when we are most aware that we can do nothing without him. He has power. He has authority and compassion to save us to the uttermost. Spurgeon goes on. Hide yourself under the shadow of his wings. Rely upon his care and power. When you cannot see your way, be satisfied that he is your leader. When your spirit is overwhelmed within you, he knows your path. He will not leave you to sink. He has appointed seasons of refreshment, and you shall find that he does not forget you. Just like he did not forget Mary. Let's go to him in prayer right now. Bring our burdens upon him. I'm just going to give you guys a few moments in the quietness of your hearts. The Lord commands you, cast your burdens upon him. He is a risen Savior who can carry them. And then I'd like to close us in prayer. So take a few moments to bring the Lord your burdens, and I'm going to do the same thing.